The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody. And I am so happy that we are together. Welcome, all you heroic men enduring the frigid days of winter, going to work early every morning, taking care of business, and doing what your head tells you to do when your head tells you it must be done. You men who ignore your heart's desire to indulge the body's seductive whisper, and instead you boldly heed the clarion call of responsibility to those you are strong enough to support and brave enough to care for. You are the army of the righteous. You are the noble knights defending the fortress of civilization against the hungry hordes of scheming and surging savages trying to invade and conquer what you and your fathers have built, knowing that even in its wrecked ruins, they will live better than in anything they could ever hope to build for themselves. Only you stand between the nightmare of socialistic slavery and the bright hope of tomorrow. And you beautiful and brave women, resisting government's treacherous proposal to marry it rather than accepting the ring of one clear-eyed man dreaming of a shared future, you gorgeously courageous women, who smilingly and graciously carry the load of work, marriage, and family, inspiring your man to greatness and nurturing your young ones to moral maturity as well as physical. Yes, you men and women who do all this and more, you men and women who have done all this, yes, You are the natural audience for the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You are the audience I devotedly serve, recognizing that every day that I can bring you the helpful, life-affirming insights of ancient Jewish wisdom, well, that is a day of privilege for me. It is indeed my honor to serve you all and my delight to welcome you to another episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Yes, that's right. The only show in the entire digital universe that reveals how the world really works. That's right. And uh, one of the ways that the world really works is on facts, not feelings. I listened the other day. I was... uh, uh, in uh, a hotel room in Philadelphia, and uh, a um, a Hollywood uh, performer, a woman, was talking 
about her ghastly experiences at the hands of a uh, uh, of of an entertainer, and uh, I just want to make clear, right? She she um, uh, willingly she went out with him. She willingly went back to his apartment. She concedes that she willingly took off her clothes. She concedes that she willingly serviced him. And when he wanted to uh, proceed further, uh, she said no, and she got up and left. And she is a victim. That's right. She is a victim of the male culture and so on and so forth. All of this is, is uh, stuff you've heard, and you don't need your rabbi to rehash things you already know. But then she came up with something that not only caught my ear, but made me whip out my little pack of three-by-five cards quicker than a sheriff whipped out his six-shooter in the good old days, I mean the bad old days of the Wild West. That's right. Uh, as you uh, devoted and regular listeners know, I not only carry, but I also recommend you carry uh, a pile of, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12, uh, or depending on your creativity, maybe more, uh, 3 by 5 index cards held together with a rubber band. You just keep them in your pocket and make sure every morning you've got some fresh ones. Every night, make sure you uh, take them out and uh, transfer anything you wrote on them uh, to some sort of action item. You, you move it to, to, to where something will be. In other words, this is an idea collector. Uh, as things occur to you during the day, it might be nothing more than the name of a person you want to follow up with. It might be uh, uh, the idea of a product or a service you can deliver, whatever it is. Um, I pulled that out. And on the top card, and I always have a blank one on top. As soon as I've used it, I move it to the bottom of the pile. And I wrote down, compassion is an action, not a feeling. And I said that because she then uh, continued after this uh, sad recount of her horrible experiences of being uh, uh, barbarically traumatized by this insensitive and boorish male uh, she um, she said, well, some good has come out of it. I can say that I feel more compassionate than I ever have before. And I thought to myself, uh, what a trivialization of a profound human characteristic. Uh, you feel more compassionate than you ever did before. What does that mean exactly? And I realized that it was another symptom of the extent to which we have become a culture of feeling instead of facts. Now, there are times you have to recognize that. Um, you know, when, uh, when my wife said, um, you always drop cigar ash on the carpet, the incorrect Although accurate response is a response based on fee and on facts, I could have said, "Well, you know, we've been married for seven years, and I smoke about three or four cigars a week, and um, if I always drop 
the ash on the carpet, that would amount to approximately 29 pounds of ash that has fallen on the carpet. And I just don't think that you have swept away 29 pounds of ash, do you? At which point she bursts into tears. And uh, the fault is mine, not hers. Because you have to know that certain times a person is expressing feelings, not facts. She might use factual mention, but what she wanted was um, an empathetic response to the feeling expressed, which is that I lack consideration and I don't care about how the, the living room carpet looks, and so on and so forth. And let it all be said that the foregoing example uh, was fabricated entirely out of whole cloth. Uh, it, no part of it ever happened, but you get the idea. Uh, but generally speaking, a culture, we've become a culture of feelings trumping absolutely everything. And, uh, and that's why it is that I periodically point out that if I am talking to you, whether it's through this venue or anywhere else, and your response is, I'm offended at what you said, that is not necessarily an indictment of me. It might be an indictment of you. Maybe you're just too thin-skinned. Because if we're going on your feelings, and then when somebody says, I'm offended, that's shorthand for saying, I am feeling offended. Right? That's a very different statement from saying, you've just made an offensive statement. That would be uh, a better way to go, because we can then say, let's look at it. You think I've made an offensive statement. Let's look and see. First of all, is it true? Then we can discuss whether a true statement can be offensive. Yeah, true statements could be offensive. Truth is not a defense against offensiveness. Okay, fine. If I really did say something offensive, I'm a, I, I want to apologize, and I hope you'll accept it. But if I didn't say something offensive, the fact that you felt offended is neither here nor there. It's certainly nothing that I should be worried about, but it's something you should certainly be worried about. Uh, feeling is an enormous problem when that trumps fact in our human interactions. Look, uh, compassion is nothing to do with feelings. It is how you act. You tell me, young lady, that you are now a more compassionate person. Tell me how. Tell me what you've done in the last day, week, month. Tell me how this, this compassion uh, manifests itself, because that is the only form of compassion that means anything whatsoever. So uh, uh, the, 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 the trend continues into other areas as well. It moves into the areas where we dismiss what people say, we dismiss what people think by labeling them things like racist, sexist, anti-Semite. And we use those words in a way that suggests the conversation is now closed. Everything you say, think, or even are has just been utterly discredited because you are a racist, you're a sexist, you're an anti-Semite, you're a homophobe. Really? Is that correct? Just why it is not correct, we'll take a look at as soon as we come back after this quick break. But uh, as usual, I like to encourage
commercial interaction. Uh, you'll remember last week's show was technically on masturbation, but uh, in reality it was about human connection. And uh, one of the points I made is that uh, each and every one of us, uh, particularly when young, have to decide whether our sexuality is going to be expressed through our aloneness or through our connection. And recognizing that uh, we are uh, human beings created to connect and that there are two vehicles for connection that we've been given, sex and money. Sex is the engine of connection that creates family and money is the engine of connection that creates society. And I spoke about that and explained uh, how that worked last week. And uh, money, the, tr the transfer of money between individuals is what builds a relationship. In other words, a transaction is something that adds to the existence of a relationship. Obviously, relationship must precede transaction. There is nothing more unpleasant than a voracious and venal-eyed man pursuing a transaction before there is even a relationship. Think about that. There's something profoundly unpleasant about a voracious and venal man trying to pursue a transaction before he has built a relationship. Think about that, both in, in your uh, professional and business enterprises and among those you encounter. At any rate, uh, the, uh, the mouth as a vehicle of communication and relationship uh, can be used effectively or ineffectively. And our culture with its enormous emphasis on leisure, relaxation, and entertainment, uh, tends to produce less articulate communication. And so in an audio CD that I would like to sell to you on the basis that we now have a relationship after all, hopefully you've spent uh, 11 or 12 minutes listening to me already. I would call that at least the beginnings of a relationship. I now feel free to pursue a transaction because here is a way we can benefit one another. I benefit you by bringing you specific, practicable, applicable information that you can use to enhance your communication effectiveness. And in exchange, you pay me for those services, which enables me to get cornflakes for breakfast. And so head over to the website. It's called uh, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, right there you will look for a, uh, an audio program called The Perils of Profanity. You are what you say. The Perils of Profanity. And here's the best part. Uh, you can download it right now. Get it in digital form, giving you um, a, an hour of very tightly packed and condensed useful information on effective communication, the perils of profanity, 
and uh, it is uh, available for an immediate digital download for a very uh, reduced price of $5. So uh, that is not a whole lot of money for information that you probably would not be able to get. Well, I think it's fair to say anywhere else, anywhere else in the digital universe, the entire digital universe. All right, before I get too carried away, let's stop for a break. And as soon as we come back, we'll uh, take a look at racism, anti-Semitism, sexism, homophobia, and all the other ways we have of silencing dissenting voices. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Be right back. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hello, everybody, and we're back here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, remind you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And one of the things that's changing at a frantic pace is a distortion of the English language. You see, the word homophobe suggesting that the person at whom the slur is being flung is somehow petrified of homo, homophobe. Well, homo means man. Well, what exactly does it mean? Oh, you're frightened of homosexuals. Is that what it is? Or you're frightened of homosexuality. Which is it? Well, again, easy to solve if we stick to facts, if we get right down to it. And that is that uh, we human beings are not animals. We are a distinctly separate species from the rest of the animal world. And one of the ways in which I think it's unarguable that we are separate species, are a separate species, is that it makes perfect sense to define an animal in purely physical terms. And so I can say um, what sort of uh, color dog I want, right? Um, I'm looking for a white German Shepherd. It's very rare. I don't want an albino German Shepherd. I want a white German Shepherd. And a long line of sellers can form outside my home, each one eager to sell me a German Shepherd. But unless anyone has a white one, I'm not buying. I want a white one. And uh, while many people uh, may discourage me and people may say, no, white ones aren't any good, the fact is that what I'm saying is perfectly rational. Uh, for reasons that are my own, I want a white German Shepherd, and that is the primary distinction of this German Shepherd. I would never say, I want a German Shepherd that believes in democracy. 
I want a German shepherd that has accumulated some wealth. <laughs> right? We never say that. The color of the, of the dog is fine. Uh, you might say that uh, you want to uh, purchase uh, something of a certain weight. Right? You, you want uh, five pounds of sugar. Perfectly fine. You might even say that you are looking for a, a three-pound lobster. I, I, I don't know how much lobsters weigh or how much of it you eat. I don't know. But uh, regardless, makes perfect sense when you talk about animals to define them in purely physical terms. But it doesn't make any sense to define human beings in physical terms. And so nobody would say, uh, I am looking for uh, a, a human being um, of a certain color. No. If you're looking to hire somebody in your firm, then you are looking to hire somebody with certain skills, with some, a certain outlook, with a belief in hard work and dedication, somebody who has loyalty and integrity. Those are the things you want. If somebody comes to tell you that uh, they have a candidate with green hair, right, it's irrelevant. That's not what I'm interested in. You've got somebody with purple skin or yellow. It doesn't matter. That's not the issue because with human beings, physical characteristics are very secondary. You know, unless you are looking to hire a swimsuit model or you're looking to find a professional a heavyweight boxer, in those circumstances, you're looking for somebody with certain physical characteristics. I understand. But in the overwhelming bulk of human interaction, when it comes to human beings, physical distinctions are not what we're looking for. And now, all of a sudden, this basic principle that has undergirded Western thinking for a very long time has been turned on its head, and we are told that uh, this individual, well, his entire identity is the result of his sexual preference. Do you see how ridiculous this is? I mean, can you imagine anybody walking around with a T-shirt that says uh, masturbator, going back to last week's show? Right? It's absurd. Well, why should it be absurd? If somebody else has a T-shirt that says proud homosexual, then why would somebody else not have a t-shirt that says proud masturbator or somebody else might say proud lover of blonde women uh, in other words if we're going to start distinguishing ourselves by our preferences for sexual sensation really it makes absolutely no sense at all and uh, you know if I imagine um, a Jew walking into synagogue with a uh, shirt that says, Proud Member of Pork Eaters of America. Right? I, th I think it's possible that uh, the members of that, might synagogue, of that synagogue might conceivably uh, tap him on the shoulder after the end of the worship service and say, By the way, you know what? We don't really care whether you eat pork or not. That's between you and God. We're, we welcome you here at the synagogue. We're happy you're here. But once you put it on your, on your T-shirt, well, that's kind of a different thing because you're now proclaiming yourself in public to be a proud uh, violator of the entire 
moral system that brings us here in the first place. We don't all adhere to every detail of that moral system, but we all recognize it for what it is, an overarching moral system, part of God's message to humanity. And how each person relates to that is his own business. But when you wear a T-shirt that says, proud member of Pork Eaters of America, or proud pork eater, you kind of change the dynamic here a little bit. Uh, You walk in with a T-shirt that says, proud homosexual, we don't really care how you arrange your sexual relationships and how you prefer to obtain sexual sensation. We don't really care. Uh, That's between you and your creator. And we're happy to welcome you here. But once you proclaim that as your essential identity, then you put us in a very difficult position because any literate human being acknowledges that the word sin is very easy to define. The word sin simply means something prohibited by God in the Bible. That's what a sin is. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to agree with me on that. You may say, you know what, I don't care that, that it's a sin, it's what I like doing. And good luck to you. That's your autonomous decision. You have the right to make that decision. But I have a right to view it as a sin because the book I look to for guidance terms that conduct a sin. However, it is conduct, not identity. That's the point. It's conduct, not identity. And so the fact that you might... Uh, be a Jew who eats pork uh, when you go out for Chinese food every Sunday night, uh, that doesn't define your identity. If uh, somebody walks around saying, I'm a rich man, that, that's ridiculous. To define your identity by what you possess in the bank, that's not who we are. So how do we define our identities? We define our identities by our beliefs, That's what does it. That's the most important thing. And that's why it is that uh, if uh, you happen to be Karen and well-known to be a courier for the diamond industry and your ship gets shipwrecked and you and one other person get washed up on the shore of a desert island and everybody knew that you were carrying diamonds and even now there's a pouch around your waist, you need to know only one thing about the person who's been Uh, saved on the desert island with you. You don't need to know how much calculus he knows. You don't need to know whether he understands the history of the so-called dark ages, which weren't dark at all, or you don't need to know if he knows how to operate a uh, a numerically controlled machine tool. You really only need to know his belief system. And based on what his belief system is, you can then decide whether you can ever risk going to sleep. It's as simple as that. Uh, belief systems really matter. But uh, physical characteristics, why would we label somebody a homosexual simply because of what he chooses to do? Why is that more of an identity than a blonde woman lover or more of an identity than a masturbator, right? We don't give those things uh, as identities and I don't accept that homosexual is an identity. Homosexual behavior is a conduct. And um, I also don't believe that 
uh, once somebody has engaged in that behavior, that that decrees that that's all they can and will do for the rest of their lives. I don't believe that's true. Uh, you know, you may disagree, but I'm just telling you what I believe, because this is called the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and I think that its primary interest um, is the things I believe rather than the things that, uh, that I am. And so, um, what about anti-Semitism? What about racism? Well, again, let me explain. It has to go back to action, not identity. Action, not identity. Facts, not feelings. And precision in communication is enormously helpful. There are mealy-sounding words. There are phrases that avoid commitment. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just listen to a, <clears throat> a member of the United States Congress, either the House of Representatives or the Senate. Just listen to how most politicians speak, and uh, you will learn non-committal phrases. Uh, you will learn flowery phrases that mean absolutely nothing. Uh, you will learn, if you make them your teachers, uh, you will learn how to talk for three minutes, and at the end of which, you've said absolutely nothing. You've made no commitment, you've expressed no firm belief, nothing at all, because there is a lot of that kind of communication going on in society. That is precisely the opposite of the way one communicates for the most success in social interaction, uh, including romantic, and in business and financial interaction, where you shoot for maximum precision, max maximum clarity, and actually, yes, maximum commitment, uh, a very clear enunciation of where you stand. Uh, learning how to communicate like that has enormous value in terms of improving your life. You know, I've often pointed out on the show in the past that if I ask you to think of one thing you could do that would destroy your life, uh, the, the, the ideas flood into your mind, don't they? Uh, you, you don't need a minute to think of one idea that could dramatically destroy your life. In a minute, I could think of 20 things I could do, well, certainly eight things I could do that would immediately destroy my life, and you could too. How about if I gave you a minute to think of something that could dramatically improve your life? It's a lot harder, right? Because in general, the world that God built contains not only physical gravity, which causes any object in a vacuum to fall with an acceleration of 32 feet per second every second, um, the, the, the world also has a spiritual gravity which tends to pull downwards, which means that it's much, much, much easier to destroy a car than to create one. It's much easier to knock down a building than it is to create and construct a building. And similarly, it is far easier to destroy your life than it is to improve it. But one thing that you could do to improve your life is to dramatically improve your fluency, your ability to uh, pronounce words, your vocabulary to articulate words. And uh, how to do that? Well, the best advice of how to do that is captured in a one-hour 
intense program that I want you to listen to not only once but several times. That's why it's not in a book. It's in an audio CD, so you can listen to it on numerous occasions. Uh, you can listen to it while commuting and exercising and walking the dog and anything else. And um, you can also download it right away. It's called The Perils of Profanity. And uh, it is not all about profanity. It's all about the subtitle, which is You Are What You Speak. You Are What You Say. And uh, if you go to my website at rabbidaniellappin.com for a, uh, a small investment of $5, which I think you'll agree is not a, an amount that most of us need to think about uh, extensively before spending, uh, $5, download it right away. Well, not right away because you're in the middle of listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show podcast. But when you're done, uh, just go to rabbidaniellappin.com. Look for The Perils of Profanity, pay $5, download it, and you've got it there and then. Listen to it. If you follow only a small part, if you, if you follow a half of its advice, uh, you will find yourself speaking much more effectively within about six weeks. Seriously. Anyway, all of that is uh, at rabbidaniellappin.com, Perils of Profanity. And I, your rabbi, back in just a moment. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and uh, we are back here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, uh, continuing on with an analysis of anti-Semitism. Should we take a look at that? Um, I must say that uh, although uh, I am Jewish, although I am certainly aware of uh, the pogroms in the 12th century that resulted in the Jews being expelled from Britain, I'm aware of pogroms uh, throughout the Middle Ages and uh, all the way up to the 20th century that, that killed Jews and destroyed property owned by Jews in Europe. And in spite of all that, I would, with one wave of my wand, utterly abolish the word anti-Semitism, certainly in the United States of America. Why? Because it has become a club with which to bludgeon dissenters from left-wing liberal orthodoxy into complete silence. Let me explain to you what I mean. Um, going back a number of years, when the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, and by the way, uh, you can learn more about that if you wish at aajc.org American Alliance of Jews and Christians um, it's an organization I played a part, a small part in founding, it was founded by a group of Jewish and Christian business people men and women, Jewish and Christian brothers and sisters um, who uh, felt that uh, the topic I had been lecturing on for about a year, namely that uh, Western civilization could only be saved by Jews and Christians, representatives of the civilizations of the Bible, 
uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with that organization, right, the, um, uh, Jewish, the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. Uh, back then, one of the things that uh, brought it about was that, uh, uh, well, let me give you an example. This, this happened in a, a town uh, in the United States, in the southern United States, where two Jews ran for two empty spots on the local school board, the local school district. And um, uh, being a, uh, a, a southern town, and some of you may be surprised to hear this, but there was enormous warmth to the descendants of Abraham, and, um, and the town immediately, uh, in, even though these two individuals did not have lengthy prior uh, resumes of public service, I love that phrase, uh, nonetheless, they were elected in, in the uh, case of one first elected office ever, in the other second, and there they were on the school board. So, um, very conservative town, Christian-based town, and what did these two Jewish members of the school board do? Well, very first thing they did was introduce sex ed, right, wh something which the school board had rightly resisted up till then. And uh, then they started pushing for condom distribution uh, in middle school and upwards. Okay, I'm serious. And so at that point, um, members of the uh, uh, school board, parents who had children in the schools, and pastors uh, all began to agitate for the removal of these two Jewish members and to uh, have them voted out at the next election, which is exactly what happened. Well, needless to say, they immediately shrieked anti-Semitism and tried to bring the fury of the New York-based Jewish establishment down on the heads of the small town. And that was when uh, I realized that there, there just really needed to be a counter-voice to this, hence the American Alliance of Jews and Christians, hence uh, I went down to this town and um, uh, made an extremely uh, loud proclamation that this is not anti-Semitism, that it is important to know that the equation Judaism equals liberalism is completely false, that I utterly reject the notion that being a good Jew and being a good member of the Democratic Party are synonymous, that those two things are exactly the same, and that hence anybody who opposes extreme liberalism is somehow anti-Jewish is a notion that I vehemently and vociferously reject. And, uh, you know, I was thanked by uh, a number of people. I was thanked by the... It was... I felt very, very gratified. I felt I had done something really more useful than I had done for months and months and months. I was, I was gratified about that, and that began a period where I uh, consistently and regularly would make trips to places where pastors and political leaders were being accused of anti-Semitism when they stood up to the excesses of modern liberalism. Um, in other words, by claiming that the values of Judaism are inherently conservative, not liberal, and it was an uh, utter distortion of Judaism to call it liberal, and therefore the idea that if you oppose liberalism, you're somehow being anti-Semitic. Anyway, all, all 
very clear, but it was bad stuff what was going on. And uh, what the problem was, again, was the reason that when I'm in charge, I'm going to utterly eliminate the word anti-Semitism from America's political vocabulary is because what it lets you do is label somebody in a way that they have to spend all their energies trying to defend themselves against, and you can't do it. Because when I proclaim you to be an anti-Semite, I am making a statement about something that is in your heart, which obviously I don't know, but it doesn't stop me charging you with that slur, and you have absolutely no way to deny it. That is the evil inherent in the word anti-Semitism. So somebody has said to me, well, what are you going to say about real anti-Semitism? Look, I believe in freedom of belief, and that means that if somebody wants to believe bad things about Judaism, you know what? In a free country that has worked pretty well for 200 years until we started some of the nonsense, people were allowed to believe and think whatever they want. And if somebody wants to believe that Jews have horns, fine, let them. In exactly the same way that I don't get all hot and bothered when people believe that the world is flat. Really, life is too short to worry about people with weird beliefs. Let them believe whatever they want. They want to believe anything about Jews, let them, it's fine. Where I object is where it becomes actions against Jewish bodies or Jewish property. But there are already laws for that. Those laws are called assault, vandalism. You don't need anything else. I strongly resisted the dreadful hate crime legislation that was introduced under the Clinton administration. I, I'm pretty sure it was. I'm sorry, I should have checked that before I said it. But um, hate crime legislation, whoever it was under, I oppose vigorously because it's not needed and will only be used to suppress freedom of expression. And so I would absolutely do away with the term anti-Semitism because it's a way of charging somebody with something that there is no way they can defend themselves against because how, how would they prove? And it's pathetic sometimes to, to hear people doing it. Well, I, I have many Jewish friends. It's like people say, oh, yeah, I've got many black friends when the other parallel charge comes up, which I'll come to in just a moment. You, yes, I know you say those pathetic things because there is no other way to adequately defend yourself, and even that is not a defense. So therein lies uh, the enormous problem when we start talking about identity instead of behavior. You are an anti-Semite. Stop it already. Why didn't you just identify where that person behaved badly? Did he uh, strike a Jew because the person is a Jew? Did he take his property or damage his property because he's a Jew? Fine. Let's deal with that. Behavior can be dealt with because it's fact-based. But when you start attacking people because of what you charge is their feelings, no. That is a calamity waiting to happen. Racism? Stop it already. Talk about actions. 
somebody behaved badly to uh, a person. He attacked a person because the person is white and the person who did the attacking isn't. That is a form of racism. But don't we have laws for that already? We don't have to say, oh, you're a racist. You attacked that white person because you're black and he's white. Yeah, I'm sure that happens. Fine. So charge them. Put them in jail. As far as I'm concerned, execute them. You attack somebody who's black because he's black and you're white? Fine. Let's not talk about what's in your heart. Let's just talk about what you did. It's unarguable. It's not a feeling. It's not an identity. It's a fact. The idea of being able to create a diversion, of being able to damage a person's ability to go about his life because you charge him as a racist or as an anti-Semite? How about a sexist? What is that supposed to mean? We've got to talk about actions, not feelings, not identities. That is the only way that this society can function. It's an enormous level of civilization to have reached, to have gotten to this point where we fight with ballots instead of bullets. It's an enormous achievement of a society to get to the point where people may say anything and believe anything. But it's only when actions take place that we legislate. That is great. It's wonderful to indict somebody because of their thoughts it's ridiculous what somebody thinks about somebody else of a different color it's their business it's their business actions are different speech is so important to be able to speak persuasively to be able to speak in a way that has people listen i mentioned a little bit earlier in the program and i'm sure you've seen this right where uh, you sometimes at a gathering, sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a business meeting, a social meeting. Other times it's just a so, uh, uh, an informal get-together. But have you noticed that there's sometimes people speak? And people then, everyone else sort of shuts up and listens to them. W what is that authority that they carry? Well, I'll tell you part of it I talk about in the audio program, Perils of Profanity, that I want you to buy. And... Um, and part of it is the, uh, the idea of avoiding phrases, words, language that is um, heavy but meaningless. Lots of words, sometimes big words, but at the end of uh, a few sentences you realize the person has just been enjoying the sound of his voice. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, that would be when people don't pay attention. When people do pay attention is when the words are selected to be words that actually do firmly and unequivocally express a thought. And learning how to do that is not hard, but it just requires a little bit of consistent effort doing some very specific things that I lay out in this audio program, um, Perils of Profanity, You Are What You Speak, and uh, you may download it. It's so important. It really is. And Honest to goodness, um, there, there, there is a way to market that 
and a, a lot of people have approached me about uh, internet marketing, etc., etc., and uh, and this would be marketed as a sort of ninety-nine dollar program or two hundred and twenty dollar program, uh, but you can download it now for five dollars. And one of the things that worries me is that because we haven't engaged in uh, high-pressure internet marketing techniques. You're going to think to yourself, I mean, and I mean not you specifically, but people in general, ah, $5, you know, what's, what's the value? You get what you pay for, right? So this is really, I mean, really invest in something meaningful for only $5. Well, it's a discount price, usually um, a little over $10. But, um, but still, it is important, and uh, its importance and value far outweighs the cost. So go to RabbiDanielLappin.com. The Perils of Profanity is the program. And um, the, uh, the website, RabbiDanielLappin.com, is also where you can comment, uh, send me notes. I'd love to hear from you, and uh, I do take into account uh, pretty much everything that I read from listeners to this show. Be back with you in just a moment. Don't go away. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Stupid internet stuff. Huh, click here for free. Oh, I got a virus. Smart internet stuff. It's one thing to say you're disciplinarians, you're not going to let them play with other people, whatever. You're not. You're crazy. And don't claim to be a part of my religion. You know, I'm hesitant when I call to call people out that I say that's not Christian behavior, you're not doing it or whatever, because there are differences. You've got to work out your own salvation. This is not faith. This is not humane. You, parents, are animals. The Morning Blaze with Doc Thompson. Weekdays, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody, and thank you so much for being back with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where uh, your rabbi continues to reveal how the world really works. And one of the ways the world really works is that there really are bandits and brigands in this wonderful world of ours. There always have been, and there always will be. If you took yourself off with your spouse to a remote, isolated desert island, and in this little thought experiment where we do stipulate benign weather and ample food and no belligerent species of two-legged or four-legged variety on the island. And as time goes by, your tribe thrives and grows, and two people turn into five people who turn into 20 people, etc., etc., and uh, we gaze upon this ongoing thought experiment through clandestine surveillance equipment over hundreds and hundreds of years, um, we will eventually find a breakaway group from your tribe who will become predators on the law-abiding members of your tribe. It's going to happen. It's going to be. And so it always is. This is true on the school ground, play, the playground at the schoolyard. This is true in the world of business. And yes, it is true in the world of geopolitics. There will always be. Uh, how do I know that? Well, obviously from the Bible. 
and uh, but it, it doesn't matter because uh, you probably know it as well. It's 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 a fundamental truth about the human condition. Uh, we are not uh, euphoric about the future. We are not mindless. We're cautiously optimistic, but we do recognize human nature. By contrast, of course, the left in general believes in the ultimate mutability of human nature and that somehow over the course of time with the correct treatment, with the correct social planning, with the correct government programs paid for by confiscatory high rates of taxation, we will eventually change human nature and make sure that there are no criminals, there are no bandits, there are no brigands, there are no bad players in society at all. And those that are there only because of the lingering effects of capitalism, sexism, racism, anti-Semitism, etc., etc., etc. But all of that stuff is tiresome. Far more interesting is the conversation I had with a young man, 13 year, 14 years old, and um, is t taught by teachers in a gig. Do I still have to tell you what a gig is? Well, I do. You know why? Because thanks to so many of you who actively promote this show, we have new listeners all the time. Yes, that's right. And so, without question, uh, there are probably, uh, looking at our numbers, there's probably 300 people listening right now who've never heard the show before. And so, when you hear me speak of a geek, you are baffled and mystified. But there's no reason for such confusion. A geek is a government indoctrination camp. That's right. It's a government indoctrination camp. This 14-year-old boy... Um, is uh, given his perspective on reality. He is provided a worldview courtesy of a GIC, a government indoctrination camp, otherwise known as a public school. And the, um, uh, I, I had asked him what he thought about President Trump, a question almost certain to evoke profound feelings and uh, deep emotional responses almost wherever that question is phrased. And so I consequently carefully choose about, uh, carefully choose to whom to phrase that question. But I did to this young man, and, uh, and he told me that uh, he was not an enthusiast of the president. And I asked him why, and he thought for a few moments and said, well, I think he's probably going to get us into a war. Okay. Uh, with who? Well, he was a little less certain about this. Perhaps he hadn't been paying attention while his teacher was propagandizing on this particular point. But we spoke for a little while, and uh, I asked him how many countries in the world he was familiar with. I asked him which countries did he think had nuclear capacity, I asked him if he thought Canada did. I asked him if he thought the United Kingdom did. He was certain that neither of those countries possessed nuclear capacity. And um, I asked him if he would be any more nervous about Iran possessing nuclear weapons than about Canada possessing nuclear weapons. 
and uh, his response was that nuclear weapons were nuclear weapons. It didn't really matter who had them. They were just bad all around. And so um, because uh, he is somebody who I care about and he's somebody who um, cares about my opinion, uh, we spoke a little bit more, and I tried to convey to him the idea that sometimes not fighting a war can be far more dangerous than fighting a war. I took him back to December the 11th, 1941. This is four days after Pearl Harbor. And a very strange thing happened at that point. Japan has declared war on the United States uh, just after launching the attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, four days later, Adolf Hitler declares war on the United States. In Berlin, uh, Ribbentrop, von Ribbentrop called uh, the American representative and notified him that as of this date, November the, uh, uh, December the 11th, 1941, uh, the, United, the, the German government considers, the government of the Third Reich considers itself to be at war with the United States of America. Um, what might have happened had Hitler not done that? Well, of course, nobody can tell. It's very similar to a question which is uh, not only asked, but books have been written about it extensively, um, talking about what would have happened if Winston Churchill would have listened to Chamberlain and would have listened to Lord Halifax and um, and gone to Hitler and said, "Let's talk about uh, let's talk about peace, right? Uh, let's let's work out a way that England can continue to exist um, without f taking more German blood and more British blood. Let's let's end this war with some kind of understanding." And um, Lord Earl Halifax, who had been uh, doing nothing less than groveling at the feet of Hitler, uh, would have gone for that, and many others would have gone for it as well. And the result would have been some kind of German control over England, if not a complete um, takeover of the institutions of English power. It certainly would have been um, regulating um, English institutions and English English people would have come to, would then have been living under German authority. German language would certainly have been taught in British schools, etc., etc. Uh, but there were a lot of people who would have gone for that. The truth is that, in my mind, had Churchill joined with uh, Halifax and with Chamberlain and with many of the other people who were pushing for that at... Uh, right through the dark days of 1941, uh, I'm quite sure that uh, England would have gone for it. And for a long time, Churchill literally carried the war on his shoulders, and there were many who charged him with, uh, with loving war and being a warmonger. But uh, what would have happened had they, in fact, gone for peace? It's worth thinking about. It's also worth thinking about what might have happened had Hitler not declared war 
on the United States. Is it possible, and let, let's also add to that little thought experiment, the idea that in America, Roosevelt would not have declared war on Germany. Um, he probably would have, and don't forget, back in the First World War, in 1917, America did come into the war. And so Hitler was would not have been crazy to assume that America would eventually come in the war anyway. And by choosing his time, he was ahead of the game. Well, that proved to be the case because during the first six months of 1942, the Germans sunk. The U-boat war was prosecuted with devastating effectiveness. And uh, uh, the Germans sunk over 600 Allied ships, not, not military ships, but merchant shipping. Do you have any idea of what it means to lose 600 ships, all of which were packed full of war material for England and for Russia? Six over six hundred ships, and so during those first year, those first months, up till uh, up till the fall of nineteen forty-two, Hitler really was looking very good. People were saying, "Yeah, I guess he was right to declare war on Germany," because until he declared war on Germany, he couldn't attack those German ships. Excuse me, he couldn't attack those American ships, which he did. And so he ruthlessly sent 600 ships, British and American, to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. The U-boats were really effective. But had Hitler not declared war, what might have happened? Is it possible that in reality um, Germany then grows and becomes powerful uh, our American support for Russia doesn't happen, and uh, because you know we we want to stay out of the war, and so Germany eventually defeats Russia, and maybe even there would end up a sort of a cold war, but not between America and Russia, but between America and the Third Reich. They would have been in total control of Europe. It would have been a German hegemony over Europe, not a Russian one. It's interesting, interesting to think about these and speculate about these things. But what Hitler did, a lot of people said, oh, Hitler was crazy to declare war on, on America. No, he wasn't. He actually didn't have a choice because he fairly reasonably concluded that America would be in the war eventually. And rather than wait for America to come into the war when it was good and ready, by declaring war in America, he was able to, um, to, to do very well during those early months of 42. He basically got ahead of things. And so choosing your time to fight, when fighting looks as if it's going to become inevitable, choosing your time to fight is a whole lot better than waiting until you don't have a choice. This was one of the great lessons for those of you who have um, followed um, Churchill, as I have, of those of you who read Churchill as I do, uh, you will know that during the 1930s, this was exactly what Churchill was saying. He correctly predicted that the blood that would be spilt, English blood, 
the blood of the French, the blood of the blood of the Allies, the blood that would be spilt ultimately would be far, far greater than that would would have been spilt had the Allies dealt with Germany earlier. There was a perfect opportunity when Hitler violated the uh, treaty ending World War One by retaking the Rhineland, Germans' industrial heart. That was an opportunity that was wasted. That was an opportunity that literally could have avoided World War II. How do I know? Because documentation that we now have access to from inside Germany, from inside the German high command, shows that uh, Wehrmacht officers told Hitler, senior command said to Hitler, if you will march us back into the Rhineland, you will bring greater destruction to Germany, uh, the Allies will come back and, and wipe us out. And uh, Hitler said, don't worry, the weakness of the Western democracies can be depended upon. And he was absolutely right. But there is no question that had uh, France and England and America immediately gone in, guns blazing, and said, back you get, out of the Rhineland, stick to the agreement we made with you, Documents now show that the Germans said and knew that if they, if if the Europe, if uh, the Allies were in fact to have made a fuss when they, uh, when the Germans retook the Rhineland, that would have been the end of it. There would have been no World War Two. The Germans would absolutely have quickly settled back down. Uh, Hitler would have been replaced. And, um, you know, the, the Wehrmacht would have immediately dispatched him because um, he, he, he was so wrong. He told them to, re, to attack the Rhineland, and uh, England and France and America would immediately come down on them, throw them out of the Rhineland. Well, without the Rhineland, they have no military uh, capacity. And um, without Hitler, they, they would have resumed uh, their role as, as Germany had been during the uh, latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century. But um, uh, it was a weakness and fear of war found in England. And yes, the World War I had left uh, everybody uh, battle-scarred. There's no question about it. But... Uh, but there was very clear treaties. There was the Versailles Treaty at the end of World War I. Uh, there was the Locarno Treaty between England and France and Germany. I think that was 1925. And it established beyond a shadow of a doubt that there would be no German army in the Rhineland. It would, it would, not, it would be a demilitarized zone. E even the Allied armies would eventually withdraw. And um, failure to fight then made for a much higher cost later on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm no prophet, and uh, I certainly uh, pray for, for times of peace, but uh, at the same time, I, I worry that the Obama administration's appeasement of Iran could well end up costing a lot of good blood. It could. I hope not. But it would have been so easy to solve early on and so hard to solve now. North Korea, again, uh, policies that years and years ago were succeeding 
in destroying its capacity, uh, really effective sanctions under Bush, under Clinton, dreadful, uh, dreadful failures, for which it's very possible that American blood will have to be spilt. And so I tried to explain uh, to my young protege that um, these are very scary decisions. Uh, these are responsibilities that weigh so heavily on the shoulders of national leaders. But it is very important to remember that there are worse things than having to fight a war. Now, you all know how I felt about the squandering of blood and money in the war in Iraq, President Bush's adventure. Uh, you know what I thought about the futile attempts to bring Western democracy to the Middle East. Enough of that for now. Uh, you know, the, the one, one has to resist foolish wars. But that doesn't mean that all wars must be avoided. And that was what I tried to convey uh, to my um, young friend. Well, folks, that is as far as we're going to go on today's show. And so until the wonderful opportunity I have to be together with you again next week, I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. Don't forget to get yourself a copy of Perils of Profanity over at RabbiDanielLappin.com. And until next week, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless you. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin.